Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. In today's episode, I have on with me sports dietitian Renee McGregor. Renee is a leading sports and eating disorder specialist dietitian with 20 years of experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. She's worked with athletes all across the globe, including supporting Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth Games teams. In today's episode, we talk all about relative energy deficiency in sport and how that impacts your performance, your mood and your body composition. It's a really great episode. It's a very nuanced topic, but really important for those who want to look, perform and feel their best. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Renee McGregor. So Renee, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, I've been looking forward to, to having you on for a while. I've been following some of your work and I'm really interested in the stuff that you do around relative energy deficiency in sport um, because it's a, it's a topic that's quite close to my heart i'm a natural bodybuilding competitor i work with natural bodybuilders and that's something that well it it pretty much happens to everybody if you get lean enough but also as i've done my masters over the last few years in sports nutrition and starting to read some more research around that nearly every paper that comes out shows that in athletic populations they're under eating i just reading a new paper published by uh, Dr. James Moorhead the other day around, uh, I think it was football players in the FA, women um, women football players, and they were like, I can't remember the exact number, but many of them were, were under eating. And I do see that with a lot of people, even recreational athletes. So really want to dive into that. Before we, we get into that stuff, it would be great to hear from yourself, how you got to where you are, what you do, and what kind of people you work with. I'm a sports dietitian, and I guess I started life many, many years ago, actually as a clinical dietitian working in the NHS. Um, so just got a really good um, grounding, I guess, in all sorts of clinical conditions, including things like um, eating disorders, gastroenterology, um, max facts, oncology, pediatrics, you name it. So was a real, um, yeah, it was a real kind of mix of specialities. And I left the NHS in 2010-ish, roughly. Um, I can't remember exactly now, but um, basically had just got to the point where I was feeling a little bit frustrated with sort of the constraints around what you can and can't do um, within the NHS, you know, in terms of sort of supporting people. And, and also a lot of NHS care being a postcode lottery. And I just got frustrated because you'd get somebody... As an inpatient, I was working in eating disorder at this point, you'd get somebody as an inpatient, you would support them for like almost five months and then they'd be returned back into the community. But if their postcode didn't have funding, you couldn't continue their work with them. And I felt that was that was a real um, poor practice in terms of, you know, it's it's really important to create those relationships. But if you don't and can't continue with them, then then, you know, you're not going to be able to help that person to their end point. Um, and I guess I've always been very, very sporty. I was really sporty at school and was in all the teams at school. I was by this point, I was doing a lot of running. Um, I've always been, I suppose, an endurance runner. And I was just getting asked lots of questions by people in my running club about nutrition. And although I had, you know, really good sound background in dietetics and biochemistry, because that would be my first degree with biochemistry, I'm somebody that really likes to make sure that I've got the right qualifications to talk about whatever I'm talking about. So I decided that I wanted to um, 
consolidate my knowledge and I ended up doing a postgrad um, qualification in applied sports nutrition actually at St Mary's believe it or not so um, that's where I did my qualification and then from there on in basically ended up um, just getting opportunities to work in I suppose sports more aesthetic sports and disability sports um, and endurance sports so that that clinical grounding I think was really critical in the ability to understand what was going on uh, endocrinologically and biochemically for that athlete and then also being able to apply the sports nutrition to it which I think is kind of probably where my expertise comes into play so I tend to sort of bridge that gap between clinical and sports because although I think sports science is amazing and there's lots of really great stuff out there I think a lot gets missed in terms of clinical practice and what happens within the body from a clinical point of view so I think bridging that gap has really been what has helped me propel my career forward and ended up me working in the area I work in now which is that kind of red s eating disorders female health endurance sports kind of place generally mm. that that's really interesting um and uh, well maybe you know or not i'm, I'm not sure but that's where I, that's the master's degree that i did in uh, st mary's um i think i did email you from the st mary's uh, email address so that's that's really interesting i didn't think it was going that long um when it comes to say some of the work that you do around i i know you you talked about you work with females and a lot of the work that you've done or and the content i see that you put out is around the the female athlete triad which i think in recent years has has adapted or changed to the name of relative energy deficiency in sport would you be able to deter would you be able to kind of give an example or not an example a definition of exactly what that means yeah sure i mean firstly i mean i I don't just work with females. I work across males and females. But yeah, there's a lot of, I suppose there's quite a lot of emphasis on the female athlete just because I think we often get missed. So hence I try to empower females. But yeah, so I think most people will know that the female athlete triad was kind of um, first identified by Barbara Drinkwater. And it was very much that link between um, low energy availability and effect on your menstrual cycle so female athletes having amenorrhea which then seem to have a complete negative effect on bone health so there's this like triad that the low energy availability affected periods which then affected your bone health which then put you at a higher risk of injury and illness um, and then subsequently what they found in 2014 what they noticed was that the the ioc consensus came together and they started to see that actually it wasn't just it wasn't just about female athletes. This was a condition that was actually occurring in male athletes as well and um, actually affected more than just bone health. It affected every single biological function in the body. And what's fascinating for me is that this was something I'd already picked up because of having had that clinical experience and working in eating disorders. There were so many similarities when I was working in sports, seeing lots of athletes coming forward that had very similar traits to those that I'd worked in the acute eating disorder sort of setting, but actually just didn't quite maybe look the image that you would expect because they weren't all emaciated, they weren't all underweight, but actually a lot of the key features around hormonal dysregulation, metabolic downregulation, you know, issues to bone health, higher increased risks of injury and illness, all these things were present in in these athletes and so it was, I was able to bring that clinical knowledge into supporting some of these 
athletes before we even knew that REDS existed. So REDS, as you said, is relative energy deficiency syndrome or relative energy deficiency in sport, whichever way you want to put it. Um, we're now calling it Red DD in terms of relative energy deficiency in dance as well. So I think everybody's putting their own little spin on it. But what it basically means is there's not enough energy in the system to support the amount of work the body needs to do. So when we talk about work, we talk about training but actually also biological function. And it looks at this, this specific area of energy availability. So I always use like an example of if you have an athlete that um, is training, say, 90 minutes a day, for example, let's say, and it's really hard. I think one of the things that's so difficult about determining REDS and also determining how this actually happens is that it's so difficult to measure energy output and it's really difficult to measure energy input and we tend to underestimate particularly in females we very much underestimate energy output because a lot of it tends to be based on sort of sport tech and hr and um you know your weight but actually if you don't know specifics like your fat-free mass, if you don't understand actually genetically how this person is predisposed, you can't really, you can't really work out what the energy output is. But for argument's sake, if we say choose a female athlete, let's say they're training 90 minutes a day, moderate intensity, call it that, they're probably going to burn, let's say there's somebody that's there's about 60 kilos, they're probably going to burn around 990 odd calories for that 90 minutes, roughly, let's say, argument's sake. Um, but then on top of that, you have general daily movement as well. So that's, you know, that's just kind of getting up in the morning, getting out of bed, walking around. This doesn't even include if you're going to commute to your training session. This is just general daily movement. And again, from the clinical background, we always use things like Schofield equations and Harris-Benedict. So we look at how much additional energy you add to your basic metabolic rate to account for that um that movement so let's i say usually i use a sort of somewhere between 10 and 20 percent depending on how active that person is in their daily life on top of their training so we're now looking at something like a figure like 1100 calories roughly as an output again most likely an underestimate, but we'll go with it just for now then what you have to do is like look at how much intake they're having. And again, as we've said, it's really difficult because sometimes athletes are not very um, honest. Sometimes they forget. And, you know, often, especially if they're, I'm finding if they use things like MyFitnessPal, it tends to over-exaggerate how much they eat because it will calculate energy from things like fruit and vegetables. And as we both probably know, fruit and vegetables do not really have energy that's easily absorbed because most of it is cellulose most of it is you know difficult to digest so you don't often get a true representation but let's say again you let's say for argument's sake the the fem general female population seems to think that 2000 calories is about enough for them even though we know it's not but let's say they do so they take 2000 calories in they're using roughly 1100 calories that leaves 900 calories left and that's for all the other biological functions that are going on. Now, what we normally do is then divide that by their fat-free mass. So that's all the body, all the mass in the body that's not fat, which includes your bones, your tissues, your capillaries, your lean muscle mass. And the science says that ideally for a female athlete, you're looking at this number to be no lower than 45 calories per kilogram in order to support 
biological function and training. So you can already see from my explanation, there's lots of ifs and buts, there's lots of estimates. It's like, it's very difficult, especially when you're in an environment where maybe you don't have access to labs and skin folds and DEXs and ability to measure exactly how much output and input is coming on. It's actually quite difficult. So using a lot of estimates. And I think what happens is that not only have you got all that going on, you've also got the fact you've probably got an athlete with a particular type of mentality. And we're also dealing with societal ideals and we're dealing with social media. So you put all this together and you end up with athletes that tend to underconsume, and you have and actually underestimate how much energy they require. So REDS is that phenomenon where there's just not enough energy in the system to be able to support biological function and the training you're doing. And then what happens is if there's not enough energy in the system to support it, it starts to downregulate your biological system. So this is where we then start to see changes to immune health, to bone health, to hormonal health, to your um, body composition, you know, your metabolic rate, all these things start to get downregulated. And there's two types of REDS. There's voluntary REDS and involuntary REDS. So voluntary REDS is much more complicated because it's very much a it, it, it's probably on the spectrum of disordered eating and eating disorders in the fact that it's actually a, psycholo a psychological element to it. And it's an actual choice to reduce the amount of energy you take in. And then you've got involuntary REDS, which is kind of like accidental. You sort of you you don't appreciate how much energy you need in order to su support everything that we've spoken about. And so you end up getting reds and you might only find out you've got reds because you get injured quite frequently or maybe you get ill a lot or perhaps if you're a female athlete your menstrual cycle becomes affected and that's like a sign that oh something's not quite right and you you go and speak to somebody who can then kind of go oh, okay let's look at your intake and outtake and see what's going on with accidental reds involuntary reds it's much easier to work with because you haven't got that psychological compulsion to reduce your energy intake and so you, um, it's quite easy. You can provide a good intervention and normally that athlete can get back on track quite quickly. Whereas obviously with voluntary REDS, you've got a whole level of sort of psychological issues going on at the same time. And so it's a lot more complicated and it needs a lot more work and tends to take a lot longer to help that person get back to where they were. So it's a very long winded uh, answer to your question, but hopefully one that covers it all <laughs> yeah no it's very helpful um i'd actually never heard the two differences between the voluntary and involuntary but it, it makes sense what you're saying um one is probably more of a, a clinical and probably me perhaps mental health challenge and, and the other being more so just activity or, or lifestyle well, when it comes to i i guess what what my understanding of before before i even heard of reds would would have considered that it's essentially some sort of me uh, metabolic adaptations where you're you're not actually losing weight, um, but because you've you're eating so low, your body's maintaining weight at a lower energy flux, calories in, calories out, and and you're if it's like a an analogy I've heard before is if it's like a a, a business that needs to save money that's going out of uh, out of business that they start to switch off things to save money, like they start to turn the heating off, they start to turn the lights off, just so that they can. Uh, keep the lights on essentially or to, to keep the, the business going but in, in essence they're, they're starting to kind of crumble within 
Um, would that would that be kind of what you would say would be an easy explanation of it for a very complex um, thing? Yeah, I mean, I often see it as a, a similar analogy, but probably maybe a little bit easier to understand for most people is it's like your smartphone. You know, when it's on low battery mode, it starts to switch everything off and it's kind of trying to protect mm. the the core yeah. calls and messaging so that you can get help if you need to. It's kind of what the body's doing. It starts to downregulate metabolism. So, you know, we see it when we look at um, when we look at blood, uh, blood biomarkers, we'll see that downregulation. It's, it's very, very obvious when someone is in downregulation. Um, but yes, you basically start to get yeah. downregulation. And not everybody will lose weight. You're quite right. Some people will. And I think we have to make it clear that it's not it's not an absolute sign. You know, some you can be in reds and not have lost any weight whatsoever. But I think some of the key signs you'll see are things like you're putting all the work in, but you're not getting the the outcome you'd expect. So you're not seeing body composition changes, you know, gains and changes. You're not seeing progression in your um, output. You're not getting adaptation from your training. You're not recovering well between your training sessions. You know, you're noticing that you're quite fatigued all the time. You may even start to notice changes to your mood because we know that as soon as sort of hormones start to downregulate, things like testosterone and estrogen, as they start to drop, then they're really important for our uptake of serotonin in the brain. And so actually often like this depression, this low mood that some athletes will talk about associated with REDS is because hormone levels are so low. So it is, it's, a, it's an absolute kind of like switch off of the body slowly, slowly, and it can be quite chronic. Like it's not something that happens instantly. It's something that will happen over time. And what's quite frustrating is that what we find is that actually when somebody's initially in REDS, they actually see a little bit of progress and get some really great results in their performance which then becomes like the the sort of the threshold that they want to maintain because they think oh well that's where i got my best results from so that's where i need to sort of stay but actually it's their body going into that as you you know as you called it into that kind of like survival mode that preservation mode so it's not sustainable it's not something that can be continued with because actually that's when the body starts to shut down but it's really hard to explain to the athlete that, yeah, I know you got a great result there, but that literally was a passing side effect of the fact that you're now in this really quite complex and difficult and not ideal place for either your health or your performance. And, and sometimes that can be the battle. Mm. What's your thoughts on the relationship between, say, body fatness or body fat percent and and state of energy, of, of energy, I suppose, relative energy, and and say body fat so like let's say for example people like you mentioned many athletes even professional athletes have this idea that they need to look like let's say cristiano ronaldo who's genetic specimen um and that's not necessarily feasible for most people where they probably can't get there or maintain that without a significant energy deficiency um and they might not feel very good and i've noticed this myself um and, and with clients is that when people get to a certain body fat percentage, no matter how much calories you try and actually add in, they're not going to feel normal unless they get to a certain body fat level. So is that a separate thing or would that be considered relative energy deficiency as well? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And, I, and the reason I'm sort of slightly hesitating is because up until recently, I very much would agree with you that, and we've seen from the 
you know, from the, the science and from the, the papers that it does seem like, particularly for females, um, there are definite kind of cutoffs in terms of when particularly menstruation gets affected. And I know like some of the papers, when you look at clinical eating disorders, and I'm slightly moving into that rather than sports for a second, is that there seems to be this figure of a minimum of 21% body fat in order to support fertility and in order for menstruation to return if it's been lost. So that's one thing to kind of hold on to. We also know then in, when you look at sports science, we also have the kind of, you know, the essential body fat and then the body fat percentages that seem to be the ideals for certain sports. So we know that things like um, gymnastics and and probably marathon running, endurance running, there tends to be slightly lower body fat percentages that are more idealistic. And then in, in you know, sort of more power-based sports, then you could probably have a little bit, bit a little bit more body fat. So, you know, netball and um, let's say uh, sprinting, you might have slightly higher body fat percentages. And so there's definitely a link. I think it's, it is a really complex subject. And I don't think actually even as a scientific population, we 100% understand it ourselves yet. And something I definitely see in clinic is that there is no one size fits all. It's not a case of getting somebody to eat a certain amount and then suddenly everything returns back to normal. And it's not always a case of getting somebody to hit a certain number in terms of weight and then everything goes back to normal or even hitting a certain body fat percentage and everything gets back to normal. It definitely seems to be multifactorial in the sense that it's a combination of sort of modification of training modification of diet, timing of nutrition, nutritional composition, body composition, energy availability. It really isn't as straightforward as you need 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. It's not as simple as that. And that's why I use that example loosely because I wanted to help to explain it. But actually, in practice, what we see is very, very different. And I think that's always sometimes a stumbling block when you are, you know, when you're looking at academia versus practice and, and and actually kind of being in that practice because there's a lot of difference between what you see in theory and what you can control in a in a study compared to when you're working in it day in day out so i think mm. body composition definitely has a part to play and, and i and i believe from the work i've been reading and I, i'm st and i'm you know i'd love to do a study in it i just don't have time but i believe that it's probably related to leptin the hormone leptin more closely than it is to anything else because we know that leptin is affected by body composition energy energy availability but we also know that bod, uh, leptin has a direct effect on luteinizing hormone which is so important in female athletes for that ovulatory mm. response so i think leptin is probably related but again there's it's such an interesting hormone and it's not often studied that vastly but i think more work probably needs to be done what I've seen working with ballet, so I work with both England National Ballet and Scottish Ballet. And obviously, traditionally, these individuals tend to be very, very lean and very low in body fat. And what's interesting is we definitely have found that we can we can maintain menstrual cycle in female dancers at lower body fat percentages. There's definitely a cutoff where it's like, this is not going to happen, but we can keep them in a sort of a lower than I would expect normally, um, so lower than the 21%, for example, as long as we provide them with sufficient energy and the timing is right, 
and the composition is right, we are maintaining menstrual function. So I think that's like, I think it's really important. I, I think a lot of people who work in the field of REDS or who want to understand more about REDS or who go in search of information, like, you know, there's a lot of, I get a lot of athletes that come to me and go, what do you think about the book? No period now, what, you know, and Nikki Rinaldi wrote that book. And I think, you know, it's a really good starting point, but actually there's this whole kind of, you must eat 2,500 calories. Well, you might need a lot more than that. You might not need as much as that. Everybody's so individual. And I think mm. that's it. Like REDS treatment, when you're looking at somebody who's who's got yeah. low energy availability and they're starting to see the side effects of that, which are being consequential in terms of their health and maybe even their performance, and they're, they're going to, this is not okay, you have to look at that person very much as an individual and look at their specific needs and their specific situation because everybody's very different, which is why I think it's so hard when you have sort of studies that broadly say you need X and you need Y, because I don't think it's as simple as that, um, genuinely. I think everybody's body also switches off to different degrees. And so, you know, I've worked with some women who we've had to completely stop training in order for menstruation to return. And then some women who can keep going all the way through and it comes back within six or seven weeks. Like it's, it's very individual. So um, I think the key, probably mm. the, the key education piece here is that being in low energy availability is not something that we would advise. And I appreciate that in certain sports and in certain disciplines, you may need to do it to achieve the outcome you're looking for, particularly in a competitive environment. But it's then about making sure you're working with somebody who can monitor you closely so it doesn't significantly affect you, particularly from a psychological point of view. Because I think there's a, there's, there's a definitely a point, a tipping point at which it then becomes something very different and can start to be actually really concerning from a long term health perspective. So, you know, anybody who is who is listening and, and kind of does compete at these levels and does want to achieve these body ideals that are probably not ideal for their body. And that's the other thing we've got to remember, like you just said, you know, we're not all Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, we're all different and we all have different backgrounds. And so some of us are genetically not going to have the phenotype to achieve the ideal that we're trying to achieve. And at what point do you accept that? And at what point do you, you go, do you know what, this is probably as close as I get before I start to tip into a place that's probably not healthy for mm. me. I don't know if this is kind of a, a generalization, but um, this is something that I've always thought is that, um, and I don't know if I heard it somewhere, but the, the best body fat that, that I think you would perform at is one that you, a body fat that you had, say, in your early teenage years, because that, you know, bear, you know, sparing some some environmental factors where you lived in a family that was, you know, had poor, really poor eating habits or your socioeconomic status is really affected. So, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, because I think before that age, people don't really mess with their diet in terms of trying to lose fat or gain weight. And I found that to be quite true, even though it's a generalization that people who are older and they're lean when they're older and can't be fine lean, were typically lean when they're younger and people who seem to do better when they have a bit more body fat and feel better tend to have been a little bit chubbier or had a little bit more body fat, I should say, when they were younger. 
So I, I don't know if that that makes any sense, but I definitely do resonate with the the, the phenotype. Whether you're looking at the kind of the mendo, mesomorph, endomorphy thing that some people just just can't be as lean as other people yeah. and feel the same as they do. And I feel like that's such an important message to get out in sport because I don't think we all need to be the same physique or the same ideals to get the same results. Because I think there's this you know there's this real misconception that lighter makes you faster or leaner makes you better but if you're getting to a point where you're tipping your own body into a place where it goes into preservation then actually you're not going to perform as well because you're not going to be able to maintain the lean muscle mass that helps you to create the force and generate the you know the strength that you the power that you need and i think that's that's the education piece that i'm always trying to put out there is that we have to find what's optimal for you and even with the ballet dancers i work with you know we screen them twice a year we monitor their body composition because we've started to work out where they dance optimally where they don't get injured as much where they have menstrual cycles or their testosterone levels are within normal limits where they start to benefit from the rehearsals and the the strength work that they do and, and we've got a really good range and we understand so if someone falls below that in screening we're like okay what's going on here or if someone maybe kind of goes a little bit above that it's like okay well, what, what can we do sensibly here to get you back into the range that we know that you're optimal at and i think that's the thing it's it's really difficult because the images that are portrayed out there will always make us feel like we should be different to to what the ideal is and particularly if you come from a from a different ethnic background as well because you're going to have a different body type and a different genetic sort of uh, predisposition to what is achievable and what's not achievable you know I, I had this conversation with um Marilyn Akuru a few months ago we were talking about her time as an 800 meter runner and and the pressure she was feeling and and how she was always compared to her her white peers, but her body was never going to be that. But yet the pressure she was put under to try and achieve that led her into low energy availability, psychological issues. And now, you know, and, and years and years of a difficult relationship with food and body image that she's now overcome, but it's taken, you know, it, it took up a lot of her career constantly worrying about it. And I feel like this is the thing about sport and also why we have to be so careful in sports science about the information we put out there and the way in which we put it out there because i don't think we can say there's an absolute ideal in terms of performance because you know there's an ideal for that person but there's not an overall oh, there's not an overall ideal and you're quite right like what we see in clinic is often and i go back to females just because it's easier to talk about menstrual cycle but often what we find is the female athletes have lost their menstrual cycle usually it returns through all the modifications and things that I've, I've talked about, but usually you're right, there's a, there's a point at which their body goes, this is where I'm happy. And it tends to be the point at which their body initially said, this is when I'm happy and when I went through puberty. You know, it's that same sort of point when the body is, this is, this is the optimal place for me. And it's remembering and identifying that. And yeah, that might not fit with your ideal in your mind, and that in itself needs work. Like that's a lot of the work we do in our clinic is helping people to realize 
one, that they don't need to fit the ideal and two, what the ideal is for them and then helping them to understand that, you know, we are so much more than what we physically look like. And you can still perform amazingly if you put all the other components in, you know, our body and our body type is just one element of our performance. And that's really important to remember. Mm. I, I remember, and that's really interesting. I remember when I was doing the, the ISAC course, which is the, the accreditation for skinfold assessments, that when they were looking at, um, say, was it normative data, they called it, or, or say, standards that elite athletes in, in whatever sport had, my question was always, is that just a matter of survivorship bias that people who are at the top can actually function to their best ability at that body fat rather than saying, Michelle, you are X percent body fat. If you want to be going from top amateur to pro, you need to get, you need to drop 5%, 6% body fat because that could actually deteriorate performance. And then, I, and then I'm wondering, like, what is the utility actually in managing these skin folds if people are each individual and there could be a variance of 10% body fat in, in players in the same position who perform the best? And even if, the, yes, the elite are x percent body fat and perform that if you try drive this athlete to that percentage you're just going to get a worse athlete and you know you're going to get all the negative outcomes you mentioned yeah and it's interesting i, mean, I talked to my my partner about this quite a lot he's a, he's an ex-athlete and uh he always says to me you know he's sort of several like 20 odd years ago now but he always said to me i never had a body composition in mind i never had i was never told to hit a certain weight or a certain he goes but i knew if i ate enough and I trained how I needed to train and I could manage that training and I consumed enough energy to do that, my body composition naturally went to that point. And that's kind of what I find with, with myself, but I also find with the people I work with is if we can actually get them to consume enough of the energy they need to consume, and that's quite a lot more energy than people think it is, they can start to put the, the they can actually manage the, those higher training volumes, those higher training outputs because their body's got enough energy to cope with it and enough energy for the surplus to do the adaptation, that's when you then start to get actually those those body composition gains that, that you're trying to achieve. And again, what people don't appreciate is that, you know, if you go, if you are in energy availability, if you're in low energy availability, one, as we've already talked about, you tend to get a down regulation of metabolism. So you your body fat actually can go up, even though you might be the same weight, your body fat might actually go up. But also what happens is if you try and if you do end up losing weight and you lose weight too quickly, you tend to lose more lean muscle mass than you do body fat. And of course, lean muscle mass is what's active. And so then you feel like you have to reduce your energy intake even further to try and maintain this number because you're just looking at the number, you're not looking at the body composition. So I think body composition has a place in terms of Absolutely. It's a way of monitoring somebody. But you're quite right. We shouldn't be using it as an ideal because I don't think I don't think that's helpful to anybody. It's finding out, you know, with the people I work with, I work with them for a number of years and you get to know where their optimal is and what their ideal is. And I think that's where the work needs to be done rather than remember probably eight years ago, I was working with a marathon runner. And she just had this, she goes, I'm the same height, same height as Paula Radcliffe. This is the weight that Paula Radcliffe got all her um, world records in. That's the weight I need to be. And you're looking at her going, no, that's, that's not going to work for you because you might be the same height, but your phenotype is very, very different. And, 
and and it was really frustrating because I couldn't get that I couldn't get that away I couldn't get her away from that because that was a number she had told herself she didn't look at body composition it was just the weight that she had focused on and unfortunately her coach was also facilitating that mm. which made it really really difficult so I think we're starting to at least move away from weight slowly I mean very very slowly but the fixation on body ideals is still problematic and I think there's definitely again there's, there's a research and an education piece on growth and maturation and actually suiting the sport to the body type rather than trying to fit into a sport you want to fit into type thing I think there's an element of particularly at the elite level if you are looking for certain parameters and certain metrics then you need to look at that early on to kind of go well this person is probably most suited to that type of type of um, sport so they're more likely to end up being the physique that you would expect with that sport and see what I find in things like gymnastics and ballet is that everybody's tiny to start with but then they go through puberty and everything changes but because they start so young you can't really work out if they're suited to that overall or not and so then they get to puberty and everything starts to change and body fat percentage changes and particularly in females we know that there's there's a good two or three years where body fat percentage changes and energy requirements change significantly and you know if this is not managed well if it's not nurtured well this is then where problems come into play because this is when you know the individual who's still young doesn't have the the psychological maturity to kind of go well this is normal this will pass i just need to kind of keep going and do what's right for my body at this point instead they're comparing themselves to where they were prepubescently and going well i don't look like that anymore and that's a problem and i'm not going to get chosen to compete or perform or, or whatever and then starts behaviors that are not going to serve them and not going to support them in the long run you've mentioned some really interesting things there that 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 I, if i'm thinking back one is around i, I suppose if, i'm not sure if you've heard the term but like recomposition where people kind of gain fat and lose muscle and this is something i've experienced over the years as well and heard many anecdotes is that people will actually you'll actually lose more fat and build more muscle at at the same weight if you're a higher body fat percentage rather than a lower one and you kind of touched on that and there's a lot of case studies looking at hormonal markers of people when they're really lean versus when they're in a healthy body fat percentage but then i guess one of the biggest fears for a lot of people with trying to eat more athletes or general population who are say recreational athletes is the fear of kind of gaining fat um and gaining more weight because a lot of people even if they are athletes say recreational athletes are, are probably not uh, at least in their minds are not ideal body fat percentage so they a lot of people all want to be leaner most of the time so how do you how do you help people deal with that and i know it's probably a, a prolonged multifactorial approach but how do you how, how should people approach that because if they start to increase their food their fear is that i'm going to gain weight and they may even say see weight gain is weight gain a normal part of this a recovery process or or finding that balance of the amount of of, of nutrition that's actually needed for you to to perform and feel optimal so there's a couple of things there. So firstly, some people do need to legitimately restore weight. And I talk about restoring weight rather than gain, because I think it is a rest restoration for some people, you know, particularly if they're, even if they 
are technically within the normal range, but actually it's not normal for them. Like, I think we have to be really clear about that. And that's something that's, that's really important. But the other thing to remember, of course, is that if you are in um, low energy availability and down regulation of your metabolism, then actually, as you start to restore energy availability, your metabolism kicks back in. And we see this because we can see changes to the thyroid function in particular. So, you know, one key hormone, which sadly you don't we don't do on the NHS, but but we do in our clinic privately is um, T3 which is directly linked to energy availability and seems to be directly linked to carbohydrate availability as well. And what we see is when this is very, very low, then everything else is low. So your, your reproductive hormones are low, your growth hormone will be low, your leptin will be low, your, um, and all your, your T4 and your TSH, everything will be low. I'm not saying they will necessarily all be out of range, but they'll be very much on the lower end of normal, which demonstrates this sort of down regulation of what's going on within the body. And what we find is that when you start to re-establish energy availability and you provide more energy, then these start to reboot. And as, as you see the thyroid function starts to, to kind of reboot and you see you know better T3 levels, better T4 levels, better TSH levels. And so while there is this fear that weight is going to change, often it's the same as when you know, we know when somebody's losing weight really quickly, they tend to lose glycogen stores. They're not losing body fat. They're just losing glycogen stores. Well, actually, often the, the weight that is associated with increasing energy availability is the same. It's, it's the, the reestablishment of those glycogen stores. It's not about actual changes to body fat percentage. Um, so there's that first. But I guess the bigger picture here, there's, there's, there's a much bigger psychological picture here, because I think often people are fearful because they are fearful of the uncertainty, you know, the uncertainty of well, what will happen if I eat more? Because as a nation, we're constantly being told that we need to eat less and move more. That's what we're told all the time. So we have this belief system that actually if we eat more, then we're going to put weight on. And that's that's problematic. So so firstly, there's the, there's the kind of whole how do you manage this uncertainty? Because that's the issue that people are really worried about. And when humans are uncertain, and that's, this is not just the people I work with, this is all humans. When humans are uncertain, generally they tend to jump to a definitive negative because it's much easier to accept a definitive negative than it is to accept the I don't know. So people always say to me, oh, but if I eat that, I'll put weight on. And I'll say, well, how do you know? And they don't actually know but it's a belief system that tells them they think they know because of what we, we hear all the time. But it's that, well, I don't know. Well, exactly, you don't know, but you've jumped to the conclusion that it will happen because it's mm. much easier to accept that than it is to accept that it might not happen, right? And, and work on that. So there's, there's that element to it. But then I guess there's also the bigger element of kind of... Um, why is it so problematic? You know, I use this word problematic, but if we are trying to restore energy and body composition as such to a place where your body can work optimally, why is that so problematic? And again, it goes back into the belief system of we are constantly being told that it is problematic to be a certain size. And actually, 
while I completely agree we should all be mindful of not becoming obese or overweight because there are negative consequences of that as well, what we never talk about are the negative consequences of being underweight or being low in energy for you. So it's about finding that place that works for you, you know, that kind of ideal for you rather than just thinking about what society is dictating. So in terms of what we do and how I work with people, it's very much helping them to start thinking about their belief systems and where these belief systems come from. And then, you know, we're not in the in the business to make people overweight and uncomfortable. We genuinely just want them to get to a point where their body can work appropriately. But again, as you've sort of pointed out, if you don't have enough energy in the system, your hormones don't work for you, which means also you don't get growth hormone. You know, growth hormone is really important for those body composition gains. So it's about helping to educate them and get them to understand that they need more than just um it's not just about an ideal they've set themselves it's actually about if we get your body to work optimally your hormones are going to work better and actually you are going to get the long-term results that you're looking for but it's going to take a lot longer and i think that's that's the problem is that you know people want a quick fix people want things to happen immediately but actually if you want to get yeah actual changes you probably need to think about it in the long the long game. Like when I work with rowers who need to hit a certain weight for lightweight rowing, we, we're looking at it a year out. We're not looking at it six weeks before the race. You know, we're looking at it so that it can be done sustainably and it can be done appropriately. And we're not putting people into these places that are un, unhealthy. And for those athletes that, because you mentioned some athletes will actually need to lose body weight. It's not all about just optimizing nutrition. Sometimes it is optimizing body composition as well. How would you approach that? And can that be achieved without being in a state of relative energy deficiency? Is that going to be, again, depending on the person? And is that, say, a are you doing something that's, say, unsustainable for a short period of time so you can get to the goal and then reestablishing the kind of baseline calories? Yeah, so I think this is, this is, a really, this is always a really difficult ethical question, isn't it? Because if an athlete needs to hit a certain weight because they're in a weight-dependent sport, then you're kind of a bit stuck. And I'd much rather they work with people that are qualified rather than just do it alone and and make poor decisions. Um, I guess where I come from is if this athlete needs to hit a certain weight and it is their job, as in, you know, they get they get paid to do this job then it's a it's a case of supporting that intermittently but monitoring them very very closely so if i a few years ago i worked with a with a rower and um he came to me and he's like i know it's lower than i need to be and i know my body doesn't actually sit here but i really need this um because it's it's you know it, it's it pays the bills basically and i was like okay and we we started working on it like I said, about a year out from from where where it was. And he had the good sense to kind of say, you know, I know that I need to think about this over a long period of time, not try and do it in six weeks type thing. So we we worked together on it, but I'm I did keep a log of his mood, his sleep, his um his energy levels, his motivation to train, all these different things to just because if, if at any point he dropped to a point where I started to get concerned, 
we would have a conversation. Okay, what is really going on here? Is this worth it? Because this is going to potentially have a negative effect for a, for a very long period of time. So I think it's, as a practitioner, it's a really difficult one to manage. And it's a really, it's ethically quite hard to be put in that position. Um, but I think all you can do is have this open dialogue and this open communication and explain that there may be, if, you know, it might be that for a period of six weeks, you are going to be in low energy availability and you're not going to feel that great. But actually, we need to help you get back on track as soon as that six week period is over. And, you know, again, when I worked with the rhythmic gymnastic girls that went out to London, that was pretty much what we had to do. You know, we, we knew for about four to six weeks they were going to be in low energy availability and it was going to be problematic. But our key sort of outcome was, OK, we'll, we do that, but we don't do it to a degree where it psychologically affects them. So that actually when they finish, when they come out of the Olympics, they go back to eating properly and their body composition goes back to where it sits naturally. And, you know, thankfully, all of them have actually been OK. Like none of them got affected with any sort of long term disordered eating or eating disorders um, because we monitored and managed it really well. Now, that's really easy to do when you are working in a in a team with a sports psychologist, with a clinical psychologist, with a medic, with a dietitian. Like when you've got that support system around you, it's really, really you can do that. The worry is obviously the recreational athlete that doesn't have that support system around them and is getting all their information off Instagram or off, off the Internet and actually puts themselves mm. in positions that can then start to have long term consequences that they can't get back from. Um, and I, I guess that's that's a whole different different kind of conversation. Yeah, I think that's a, a major challenge is that many people who are, say, um, say recreational athletes, they don't have that support and they do get a lot of their information. Even, uh, even say, high-level amateur athletes, they don't have other any other support than maybe a voluntary coach or a part-time coach who just coaches them in the sport that they do. Um, and, I, and I see it a lot where athletes will have, have an off-season and they use that as a time to, say, enjoy themselves with food and alcohol and stuff and then think well i'm getting back into the sport now so i'll use this as a period to drop the weight while starting the season which obviously is not a very good idea um one of the things i did want to touch on before we finish up was whether relative energy deficiency is is something that occurs within the general population because a lot of people are quite active now even though obesity levels are going up fitness is is important to a lot of people also and it's very hard to sometimes def uh, define activity levels within they say the equation that you might use because some people might just walk a lot or do a lot of activity and steps and stuff they might not do it in an endurance sport or or something that's quite um that's quite say high intensity so but, but you do see a lot of people that aren't eating quite they aren't eating quite a lot and they they might say want to drop body weight but they can't quite drop body weight. Is that because perhaps they are, are are also suffering from a state of relative energy deficiency? They might not have got the labs or worked with a, a clinician to establish whether they have some of these symptoms, but they might just feel low energy. Is this something that you think is common within the general population? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I think just split it up a further, like we know that there was, there was a study that came out of the Sports Institute of Northern Ireland, which which shows that, you know, 43% of recreational athletes 
are at risk of low energy availability and that's recreational athletes but absolutely you know you're splitting it a little bit further with the general public as well and i think you know we know again the latest stats from the the report that came out in 2020 um 16% of the population now has an eating disorder or disordered eating and that that covers not just you know i think everybody often associates eating disorders with restrictive eating and anorexia and bulimia but actually that also in includes binge eating and you know other other eating disorders as well and any sort of eating disorder any sort of dysfunctional relationship with food is probably going to result in low energy availability at some point like with you know with binge eating disorder we know there's a sort of psychological aspects to it but actually often it's it's spurred on by the very restrictive eating processes that happen within the the day so that low energy availability during the day and you know we know again that the human body is hardwired to want to achieve energy balance and so in these individuals then their body is trying to accumulate the energy they want but they have it all at the end of the day and then that becomes problematic because there's all sorts of other hormonal changes that occur that make it difficult for them to stop and also psychological reasons that make it difficult for them to stop and so 100% I think you know I, I believe and I can't prove it but I believe that also one of the reasons why we struggle to get the obese population to lose weight is because we use this very basic principle of calories in and calories out and we tell everybody to have this deficit of 500 calories or, or whatever it is. And I don't even know where these figures have come from, because when I've gone back to the science to try and find it, I can't find it. So I don't know where it's come from. But, you know, if you think about the obese population, you've got somebody that's probably got quite a heavy mass, but probably maybe not, but also very heavy, but, but maybe high body fat percentage. But you have to be able to help them to work out what their actual energy requirements are and then provide a smaller deficit so that they don't go into this low energy availability and stop the weight loss from occurring so these very low calorie diets that are often instigated with the obese population yes they may help them to lose initial mass but what they don't do is do anything with the body composition and again it becomes more and more difficult for that person to lose weight and their body just goes into compensatory behaviors just in the same way as we see with with athletes so yes i do believe there's a problem in the general public but it's more difficult to prove and i think because we're so obsessed with obesity and curbing obesity because it it obviously has a big implication to our nhs service and and health problems and you know disease and and everything else we just go into this we need to get them to eat less without thinking about well what does that actually mean you know if we're giving if we put them into big deficits all that's going to happen is the body's going to go this is this is way too much i am in low energy availability and start switching things off and so you know again if you go back into the if you look at the studies around obesity and obesity management and we know that none of these interventions have worked none of them we've had interventions for 20 years and they've not worked because it's not as simple. Again, obesity is an eating disorder in its own right, and it's multifactorial with both social, economical and psychological issues. But all we think about is let's just change the balance of nutrition. And it's it's not as simple as that. That's That's been really insightful. Um, so, Renee, thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find more about you and your work? 
So um, you can find me on the website, which is just reenemcgregor.com, which is nice and easy. Um, you can also find quite a lot of little snippets of education that we've spoken about today on Instagram, which is r underscore McGregor. We're also on LinkedIn, just under Reenie McGregor. Um, and actually, those of you that are interested in this whole kind of mechanism of how the body works and particularly this area of low energy availability, not specifically to reds, but just eating enough and, and making sure you can feel your um, your your sport. Um, I have a new book coming out in June, which is called More Fuel You. And it kind of goes into the insights of of all this and, and how you can choose the best approach for you as an individual. Amazing. I'll put all those in the show notes and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot, Renee. No, thank you for having me.